0: Welcome to The Space of Justice, a podcast from the Duke University Student Affairs Committee on Just Space. I'm your host, Michael Betz Second, and my pronouns are he, him, his. This season, The Space of Justice is aiming to ask two big questions of its guests. What does it mean to be anti-racist, and how do you define just space? Before we get too deep into the weeds on all the different ways to define anti-racism spatially, We need to stop and gain some operating definitions of what those two terms of anti-racism and just space mean. We need someone steeped in it to help us define it. And that's where our season's first guest comes in, in a big way. Today, I'm joined by Biwa Emergent Equities, a racial equity firm that uses racial equity and organizational leadership development to transform organizational cultures that's based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In studio with me, our founding partner, Tina Vasquez, and firm partner, Itai Jeffers. To be honest with you all listening out there, knowing to call the B Team was the easiest part of getting this season's podcast going. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me today, Tina and Itai. Thank you, Michael.
1: Thanks for having us. So
0: before we get started today, I you know, the, the world outside needs to know a little bit about you too. So could you do me a favor and introduce yourselves, uh, who you are and where you are in relationship to Duke and Durham, uh, some of your areas of interest, your pronouns, and a fact about yourself that you find interesting. Tina, could you start us off?
1: Sure. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm Tina Vasquez. My pronouns are uh, she, hers. And I'm originally from New York, born and raised New Yorker. I am first-generation American, Puerto Rican, Jamaican, and Cuban parents moved to North Carolina about four years ago now. I live in Chapel Hill. And I think a fact about me that is interesting is that I, I used to be a professional dancer. My love and passion is all things art. And one of my, one of my things that I do on the side is I, I teach dance at Empower Dance Studio located in Durham. Uh, it's an amazing place, and I really love Nicole Oxendine's vision because it's very much aligned with what our firm is about. And I send my kids there; they they dance there, and I teach there, and I just love that uh, that I can continue to explore my my dance love um, as part of Durham. Even though I live in Chapel Hill, uh, that's probably my my deepest, closest connection to Durham is that dance studio. So, a little bit about me.
2: Thank you, Itai? Yeah, hi, I'm Itai Jeffries. My English pronouns are they and them. I am born of Southern um, poor white people in rural Person County, just north of Durham. And I'm a child of Okanichi people, meaning my dad was Okanichi. I lost him last May. Um, I am a sociologist. I do public health research for the Two-Spirit community I currently live on the West Coast, and I work through the Northwest Portland Area Indian Health Board in addition to working with the B team. Um, Just a little bit about me. Uh, I I really just love to give back to community. And so um, here in the Seattle area, I'm part of a local Two-Spirit drum group. I work with several uh, local youth groups, including a Two-Spirit youth. Uh, Group that meets out of the Na'a Ilahi Fund. And I really like Korean dramas too. So that's just a little factoid. (laughs) I
0: love that. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, both of you. Welcome, welcome, and welcome. I always like to start by, you know, kind of centering our guest and centering myself, just surrounding uh, the idea of how the work comes to you specifically that you do. I'm a big believer that, you know, this particular work needs your specific hands. Uh, and given this, you know, I'm always interested in how you all came to the work that you're doing specifically with, uh, with Biwa Emerging Equities um, and how you feel that you are enacting change within the Duke and Durham area. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: It's such a big question, right? It's, kind of like you know it almost feels like it's my whole life has led me to this moment what part of it do you want um (laughs) but I, I try to pick on threads and um and and the thread is very intertwined with how the firm even began in the first place and so maybe to just be somewhat succinct about it I was living in New York um left the art world um it traumatized me. It was hard. Um, I think <clears throat> working as an artist in our culture and in our society is really difficult when you're also trying to survive. And especially when you come to it from a, a, from a perspective of community and not mm-hmm. necessarily as an intellectual pursuit or, mm-hmm. um, or a, as a, a commodity. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to figure out how to survive on that because then the only alternative sometimes is, is teaching. And, and that's beautiful. Um, But as an artist, there's, there's lots of stigma about like, Oh, you know, if you're teaching, that means you couldn't hack it. Right. Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in addition to that, uh, being an artist, being, you know, an Afro-Latina working with other Black and brown women trying to understand where they belong in the art space in a heavily like white supremacist culture where you know the arts are a funny thing because it, artists are like the some of the most profound critiquers of our system, but we are also subject to its capitalist intrigues and, and mm-hmm. goals. And, and at the same time, we, we can also sometimes escape the critique of white supremacy also, because we get to say it's creative choice. So there's all Mm. interesting nexuses of, of places where we can hide or cause trauma or experience trauma. And I think I, in my twenties was really grappling with all of that and didn't know, how to be what I felt was intrinsic to my soul about, you know, being an artist is about being a part of a community and there's a healthy way to do that. Um, I didn't find healthy ways to do that. And so I left the art world and I was like, forget that. I'm going to just, I want to understand how we build institutions because in my mind at the time that was the problem. Um, artists don't know how to build institutions and, and that's the, that's a struggle. So I, I ended up going to grad school and, Really focused on organizational development, nonprofit management, um, and spent a good amount of time focused on that. And then as I was doing that, what continued to emerge is this thread of focus and racial equity. So even when I was dancing and doing art, all of my artist endeavors were in the spirit of what does it mean to be in community? What does it mean to be? discussing racial equity, but also practicing it. And, and then even in my nonprofit management spaces, I still was doing that too. It was something I never could get away from. And um, partly because it was tied to my own self-preservation and salvation. And when um, my family decided to move to North Carolina, I was going to be leaving uh, that whole career path behind. I had no contacts here in North Carolina, and it felt like it was an opportunity for me to, to get real clear about what I actually wanted. And I didn't want to go back into another organization trying to make it understand racial equity from the inside, because that was very traumatizing <laughs> in and of itself. So I was like, well, what would it look like if I just focused on that and use my outside perspective to support organizations based on what I've learned along the way? And that is how I ended up finding Vivette at a jacked up event that neither of us wanted to be at. Neither of us wanted to stay at, uh, but we stayed and I went up to her at the end of the event and I was like, where are all the people of color? She's like, where are you living? And I was like, uh, white cross. She's like, Oh, I was like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, Found out at that time that we had applied to the same organization for a contract. We responded to the same RFP. We didn't know at the time, but the organization actually wanted both of us, but they can only hire one of us. And I didn't want to work by myself, and I felt like I was also new at this, so I asked Vivette if she could take me under her wing and if I could just rescind my application and join her team, and that's what we did. And that's all history wrote. Then it just became, then we just realized that we had a, a chemistry together. Like between, it's intergenerational, it's, you know, varied in perspective in terms of culture, um, different cultures, but the, our cultures um, are symbiotic in a lot of ways. And we just were able to show up fully for each other and, and being able to just hold each other in, in our respective gifts and medicines seemed to be really helpful to other people in our facilitation. And then it became what it has now become. And, you know, it couldn't, we, I think we both struggled to like really make sense of it without each other. And then when we found each other, we're like, oh, like, we are the parts that could actually make this thing really work for us and for the communities we're trying to serve. Right. And since then, like, we've just, we brought in other folks who don't have, have the things that we don't have to further, um, further make that possible. So anyway, I tried to be succinct, but that wasn't so succinct. (laughs) (laughs) Quick
0: quick follow-up for our listeners. Who is Vivette?
1: Vivette Jeffries Logan. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't think there's a soul in North Carolina that doesn't know Vivette. Um, Vivette, I would agree with that <laughs> I mean itai also needs to answer this question but I'll I'll answer it from my perspective who Vivette is to me Vivette is is my co-founding partner um Vivette is also my mentor she's one of my elders um, and she is um, a power to behold and I'll let Itay share the rest of who she is when the time comes
2: yeah so. Uh, Vivette is an auntie of mine, and she is one of the first people, literally, to to see me mm. in all my capacities. And we grew up together in this work because as Vivette was getting introduced to this work, she kind of took me under her wing as well, which I think is, is something she does when she loves and cares for somebody. So, uh, you know, she saw me and, and started just, I think, training me to see myself. It's really the way I see that. And uh, so we, like I said, we've been walking this road together for 18, going on 20, sometimes going on 70 years, it feels like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and 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 we're just, we're close and she's she's a grandma in this work. Everybody, everybody, you know, I, I meet people out here on the West Coast mm. who are like, oh, you know Vivette? I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Um, that's awesome so yeah that that's that's who Vivette is and and that and so much more and I think among our Okanichi people too she's just uh, she's just a warrior and back in years ago when she founded the Okanichi Health Circle she invited me to sit at that table and that's really where that work began because she taught me that that healing has to be paired with with culture and how we have to love in a collective and not as individuals. And it, it was, it was important for me to learn that, mm. that like loving and forgiving my family, loving my community is all part of loving myself, how it's all swirled up together. And I see that every time she walks into a place now she's not going to, she's not going to stand a place where she's disrespected. Now you will learn that, <laughs> but as long as she's being respected, she loves and cares for everybody in the room. And we're working with folks. She really cares that people uh, get it. And she, She leads from that place of like walking through this, whatever you call it. Um, We don't really call it anti-racism work, but we call it confronting white supremacy, which we also call Mm -hmm. humanizing ourselves. So Mm -hmm. if people are willing to like love and respect themselves, to make themselves vulnerable, to hold themselves in the work, she's going to continue to be there with them and show that love. So I really appreciate that. She's taught me a lot about what it means to love myself.
0: Mm. That's awesome. That's awesome. With relation to loving yourself, how did you, Itayi, come to this work? It sounds like Vivette was a a pivotal partner in that, but what brought you to Vivette?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we've been doing stuff together for years. Um, I was working a job out here on the West Coast um, and, you know, in a partnership, in a relationship um, that brought me out here. Um. It just so happened that a little over a year ago, uh, I left job and a partner all at the same time, Uh, kind of took a different control of my life. Not going to get into all those specific details, but I was at a moment where um, I was a little bit flailing, but it seemed that that aligned with the moment that Vivette and Tina really started to reimagine what their capacity could be and came together and were going to grow this into the firm that it is today and it just so happened that the stars aligned that that meant that I could come and join on this team and I play in my mind at least I don't know if you have to ask Tina about this but I play an interesting role because it is a very it's a a uh a, a, a movable and a um it's a kind of role where I transform depending on what's needed so sometimes what's needed, and this is often the case, especially when we think about caucuses and stuff in the work, is that you need a person who I, I identify as white-seeming. I am Okanichi person who is white-seeming. And so sometimes, since you know that means that I'm the whitest person on the group, I have to be there to really, I think, set an example and humanize what it looks like to be vulnerable in that, and that it's not that scary to talk about what that how that shows up in different spaces, that you're not going to have a nuclear meltdown if you admit that you, you know, show up white in certain places. Um, And that's a hard thing for people to get. So sometimes (laughs) that's what it looks like. And other times it looks like, you know, being another voice in the space to make sure that uh, indigenous people aren't erased. Sometimes it means I need to show up in my PhD role and like tell a board member from a certain organization how it really looks and what's going down, right? And so sometimes I have to pull out that skill set. And, uh, you know, Vivette and I do healing work together. And so sometimes it's like dropping people down and talking about emotions. And so I'm all over the map. But I think that all of us at B have a really versatile skill set. And so I feel like that's not unique to me, but that I fit in in a team where we understand that like a corporate model for approaching this stuff, a little can that, that says anti-racism work is not going to work, right? So we're always moving and shifting Ooh. and adapting depending on uh, – we. I mean, we have the way that we work, but we have a lot of diverse skill sets that need to be pulled on because really what I said earlier is that this is about humanization. The dismantling of white supremacy right. is about having everybody in that room understand that they are human, and in order to be fully human, they got to sit with themselves. And that's the hardest part, really, is to learn to sit with yourself through this.
0: That's – yeah. I can want to attest to that, uh, given that, you know, through the center for documentary studies, uh, your firm, the B team is actively in the process of doing that transformational cultural shift. Uh, and that effect, I can also attest to the fact that a lot of it is sitting with ourselves, uh, and being, being present really, so that we can hear each other and, and, and be in space to, to really, um, to be open to actually be about the work of the change, so uh, mm-hmm.
2: and and not being uh, not thinking you need to always get it right. That's another big thing too.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And I and I think that's a hard thing, especially in the work of you know anti racism or equity or in those developing spaces. I feel like there is a total push to be a hundred percent correct all the time, and that there is no grace for missteps. Um, and so, you know, I guess, I guess this kind of rolls into the next question. Uh, I think before we even get into the conversation of missteps and misguidance, you know, how do you define anti-racism both as a firm and then internally for yourselves? And then how do you help folks to see that grace and love and relationship are kind of the most important parts of moving forward in this work? Itai, can you lead us off on that one?
2: Yeah, first of all, I don't really use the language of anti-racism, but I appreciate the idea of it. Um, We really believe in dismantling either or thinking. And the word anti means that there's something that is the opposite of racism. Um, And so we do talk a lot about dismantling white supremacy, about humanizing oneself and others. And really, about getting in right relationship with yourself so that you can show up in an authentic way uh, with others in in all the spaces that you live in, and so, when I think about what that looks like on the ground, it's really having everybody understand on a real level that they can share with others um, and be in community around with what is your stake in dismantling white supremacy, and mm. we Sometimes we get in a space where BIPOC folks, you know, what we're talking about is dismantling white supremacy is about survival. And the the goal is to have people understand it's not just survival. It's about finding a way to thrive. Right. Mm-hmm. But for white folks specifically, it's having folks understand that you're not out here trying to dismantle white supremacy on somebody else's behalf, but that you have also been dehumanized by the process. Of, of being raised in a culture that is white supremacist. And so I think that's the way that I really define it as well. Um, and I'm, yeah, Tina, what you got?
1: I mean, that that was beautiful. I don't know that I necessarily have much to add to that because that's, that's 100% on point. Um, I think as you were talking, Itai, I think like maybe what I'll add I can add is like the next layer to that is you know, we support and facilitate a cultivation of relating to oneself, having a relationship to yourself and to your role within your institution. And then the next level is just understanding how relationships are the vehicle for all of this work. And I really love the way Itai referred to that because it is true. Like, uh, you don't, you, if you looked at our website, if you, if you hear us, Talk about the work, we never use the word anti racism. Um, just dawned on me that that's true. Like, we just don't talk about it that way. It is confronting white supremacy. And when we think about equity, you know, th- th- there's a lot that we can say about that in terms of our cultural grounding and foundations and relationship to that. Um, but one of the pieces I, I'd like to draw out is that for us, equity is. Is about interdependence. You know, we Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and white supremacy, Mm. I think, oftentimes (laughs) creates relationships where there's unhealthy codependence.
2: Mm.
1: And and what we try to foster is a healthy sense of interdependence, and that the the relationships that you have with each other on the, the just the most micro level are reflective throughout. You know, when you think about, like when Adrienne Marie Brown talks about the small is the large, the large is the small.
0: Right.
1: Um, you think about how, especially in her book, In emergent in Equity, talking about like mycelial networks and things in nature reflect, you know, bigger ideas. Like that feels really true for us that yeah. we oftentimes find ourselves with prospective clients trying to explain what it is that we do. And people are, people are often looking for that box that can that you you was talking about that can training, that can workshop, that, that, you know, magic bullet. And we have seen, and now have been able to like say with confidence, cause we've, we've watched it happen is that when you are clear in your approach, but that approach gives you a level of, flexibility to be responsive and use relationships as the vehicle to drive the work transformation is possible and it's mm-hmm. possible quickly. Like I think as people go into it thinking, Oh my God, you want me to form relationships with people? This is like, you know, we're talking 10 years. Like we've seen transformation on boards in six sessions, which is the equivalent mm-hmm. of 12 hours mm-hmm. and over a six month period. Because we use relationships as a way to understand how are they approaching their understanding of themselves, their roles, and then how is that understanding impacting the way they're strategizing together and and creating services and programming for the communities that they're trying to serve. That it's all reflective throughout every level and layer
2: of the work. So I,
1: I think I would just add that.
2: That's right. That's right. And one thing to add to for me is that we could easily if we're thinking of anti-racist strategy, you could come up with a policy for an organization that basically prevents on paper some type of like hiring discrimination. Right. Which a lot of times Mm -hmm. anti-racism work comes in and builds these beautiful little strategies and um, policies, protocols, procedures. You could come in and do that, but the culture doesn't shift. And that stuff continues to happen. We know that. Just look at like Civil Rights Act. Right. So we know that people and and cultures find a way to shift around um, using that white supremacy Mm. as a lens and does what it does, Mm. what it does. And so when you look at the relationships that build the culture and you confront it there first rather than putting some policy or, or protocol on paper and people learn to move differently and then they can create something that actually just reflects what the way that they show up together. And we find that that direction is much more powerful
0: yeah i can I can definitely get a sense of that, and you know you you talk about um the relational aspects of things being you know that which leads and and often you know if we could step back for two seconds and kind of think about even what this committee is doing at Duke you know the just Space committee is trying to find uh, a relational way to link in with people to be able to have a conversation about what something like spatial justice even looks like um and so kind of thinking about what we've just talked about uh between you two as far as kind of the the dismantling and confronting of white supremacy how do you define something like uh just space or, or spatial justice tina
1: well actually i'm gonna slow my way into that question if that's okay because okay. That's um fine. I want to bring a vivetism into this. Uh, she do. she often talks about rugged individualism and how mm. rugged individualism got us out here, like acting like we're by ourselves and we got to do all this work by ourselves. And you know, Itai said this once in a in a session that was really beautiful, which was that you can't be anti-racist by yourself. There's mm. no such thing as um, a sole <laughs> loner anti-racist. Right. So, right. You know, ask me your question again, now that I've, I've, I framed that.
0: No, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, I guess in, in the, the purpose of the committee that, uh, is formed on just space is to be able to come into spaces and alongside people with that relational aspect um to be able to talk about whether or not a space is a just space or spatially just um and we have a lot of different working definitions that we're we use, but i 'm very curious you know from your perspective, how would you define something? that sounds simple, like just space.
1: I would say that you're moving from a rugged sense of individualism to a a rugged sense of honesty. That a just space is when people can show up fully. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that in of itself needs unpacking. Uh, We just had a session yesterday with a client where, you know, we gave an example of about showing up, speaking your truth, being honest about where you're at. And, you know, people often interpret this stuff as like, you want me to tell my personal details of my life, or you think I got to be best friends with everybody, or I got to trust people. And we're actually not saying any of that. Um, What we're talking about is, can you be honest in the moment when your heart is pounding and you know you're supposed to say something and you don't? Can you, can you be clear about your own boundaries and what you need so that in the taking care of yourself that people understand how to also take care of themselves so you all understand how to take care of each other? Can you, can you respect the fact that you're going to make a lot of assumptions about what's going on in people's lives? And you can own up to the fact that you are making assumptions, and then go ahead and unearth them by asking questions and being curious and showing up to relationships from a place of curiosity. And can you do all of that? Um, is there space for that? And in res- with regards to institutions and organizations, we don't we have effectively policed and procedured our way out. Of authentic relationships for the sake of liability.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Like, we do not want to be liable. We do not want a discrimination suit. We do not want fill in the blank. And so, we've carved out these ways in which we've operationalized, quote unquote, effective, efficient, professional ways of relating to one another that are also Mm. white supremacy and that disconnect us from ourselves from our true souls work to our you know our real voice and so to have a just space is when all of that is coming to bear in a very real way people are showing up honestly to interrogate that and they're showing up honestly with where they are at that you might not actually be in a good place or in a good space, and that is more healthy to acknowledge than to act like you know. Oh, you got it mm. when you don't, because our our sense of self worth and value is dependent our, on our ability to produce. Right. right. So, and I could say much more, but I'm curious about how Ita, you would answer this question. Mm-hmm. So.
2: Yeah, I think a lot like you, Tina, I want to back into it because it's easy for me to say what it's not first. And so what what a just space is not is that it's not performative, right? We do see people trying to perform. I think this is across the spectrum, trying to perform what it looks like to be a good white ally or a good accomplice and BIPOC folks who need to show up in a very particular way, because this is the only way that they've been allowed in like, you know, corporate spaces or professional spaces, because we know that that is that comes with a whole set of expectations. Right. So we kind of have to teach ourselves across the board how to be in those spaces. And then it's not as well like this, this space where, oh, okay we need to like tokenize and elevate certain voices just because Um, it's not like deferential. Right. It's real. And um, when it comes to like white folks in those spaces, it's not a self-flogging or or this like guilt ridden space either. Um, That is not anybody's expectation. You know, nobody wants to work with the sad, um, the sad, guilty white person either. So it's not a space where people tiptoe. Right. It's where folks learn how to say the things. Um, And because of that, I think once you can kind of get some of that awkwardness and some of the shame out of the space, and you can speak more freely, it becomes a space where you can actually dream together. Right? It's a dreaming space. About, I think about as organization, what isn't here that could be? And once you mm-hmm. remove some of those, those layers that prevents people from being able to access themselves, you start to imagine what some of those things might be. But in addition to that, we talk about people's medicines and their gifts that they have. And so in addition to what isn't here, what is here that we could lean further into? And we find that people have a, a lot of gifts that simply weren't accessed because, um, in, in some cases, because people were never given a voice. We look at, we have examples of people that we've worked with who are older BIPOC folks who've been working for the same organization, white organizations, for 20, 30, sometimes 40 years, and they had learned to be silent. And you shift a few things in that with everybody in that space. And suddenly you realize you have this really powerful medicine and voice there. And everything shifts. People from from kind of the lowest levels of an organization all the way up to the top respond to that. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. I think about that. Just right. space is just just like Tina said, this this space of rawness and realness.
1: Mm-hmm. I might add one thing that comes up a lot recently recently which is just going back to relationships and that friend, like people assuming when we say relationships, we mean be friends or be best friends, right? Which like in, you know, has people engaging in like toxic positivity and over politeness mm-hmm. and all of that, mm-hmm. you know, we're like, no, no, no. When we say relationships, we're talking about clarity of communication and intent. And we're also talking about when we're saying Trust. So this is something else we borrow from Adrienne Marie Brown, moving at the speed of trust, that you don't have to wait for people to be 100 percent trusting of one another to do work. What you do need, though, is people's willingness to extend the opportunity for someone to demonstrate trustworthiness, that they're going to have faith in the people they're Mm. walking alongside, that they're going to mess up. But the intentions are there that they're going to mess up and learn from it and grow. When you have that kind of trust in the space where it's like, you know, like I don't fully trust you, but I have faith that if we keep going down this road, you're going to demonstrate that you are going to be trustworthy in a way that I need you to be. That is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And that is a place where we can start actually building. And when that's not present, that doesn't mean you can't start. It just means that you have to even start way further back. You know, it, we have quite a few clients where we'll go in and they'll say, "Let's do some. Let's develop a racial equity team, which is a mixed gra- mixed identity group. They, you know, they are a cross section of race, uh, ethnicity." organizational function, hierarchy and position, they, they span the gamut and we get there and it's like, whoa, whoa, we can't start there. There's too much trauma here. We need a backup because there isn't that faith in extending that opportunity for trust building. So we start even, you know, a few further steps back, which is where the caucuses come in. So we help develop those those uh, relationships within affinity spaces, and and get people at least trusting within their own affinity spaces, and developing the resolve and the resilience to engage in the spaces that feel less um, less safe. And I mean, we don't really use the word safe anyway, um, but spaces that feel extremely harmful. That at least now there there's a space that they can go to to be able to recover from that, um, mm-hmm. and the transformation is unbelievable when people are able to build with that in that understanding of relationship and trust.
0: Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I, in Itai, I know you're West coast, but you're tied into this group. So you are implicated in the Duke and Durham sphere, you know, as we're having these conversations and right now with COVID, everybody is everywhere. So, you know, we get to be kind of Pan, whatever, Pan American, Pan European, Pan African. Everybody gets to be all over the place because it's a click of a button. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, so, you know, what do you see as, you know, the role of a space like um, the university in creating these spaces of justice?
2: Right, right, right. Well, Durham is part of my people's original hunting grounds. And I have never heard the the university itself acknowledge that. Um, and so that's just, you know, I think that, that UNC does uh, because of their American Indian Center and they have that relationship. But I've never really heard Duke acknowledge that at all. But one thing I'll say about COVID in this time is that COVID in some ways brought a blessing to me personally because I'm able to engage in that work in North Carolina. My heart is always there uh, with my people and with the land that I grew up on. And when I think about Duke, though, you know, I'm I'm grateful to Duke. Duke paid part of my tuition for undergrad because my mom works there. Uh, she's in the, the Office of uh, Research Integrity and mm-hmm. So she's been at Duke for 20 plus years, and and I'm I'm grateful for Duke. But one of the things is I don't think that when you ask that question, like, what is Duke's role? No, for me, it is what is Duke's responsibility? Mm. And Duke has a responsibility because a lot of the dynamics we're out here working on, they were kind of forerunners in it. The Duke family, the families that led up to the creation of the university, we're talking about, um, you know, Indigenous removal, genocide, slavery—all of that, right? Tobacco. Right. right. So, so when I look at Duke and other settler institutions, and uh, and not just universities, but cele- uh, settler institutions in the state of North Carolina and the South more broadly, like um, they have a responsibility to to not only throw money, but to throw heart, to to throw responsibility, to throw relationship, and and to be in this work, right? Uh, And it really shouldn't just be offshoot centers. It shouldn't be staff who are working on this. It should be all the way up to the levels of of the the chancellors and the provosts and the deans and the presidents. They need to be in this work, too. And I want to see that they can be in a space that is a just space like what we defined earlier.
0: You talk about, you know, the presidents and chancellors and provosts and all these folks being involved. And I think oftentimes when we have conversations, uh, and you've teased this out a little bit, but I want it to be explicitly stated, when we talk about, you know, who needs the support and help of defining what just space looks like, or being able to point out white supremacy, I think there's a a feeling that only privileged communities, white, wealthy, cisgendered, hetero, able-bodied, Christian, et cetera, communities need to be about the work of you know, anti-racism or pointing out white supremacy in spatial justice—is that true? If so, why? And if not, why not?
1: It's everybody's responsibility. Everybody is responsible. Um, you know, white supremacy has all of us spinning. No one's exempt. BIPOC equity is not exempt. We're socialized in this too, and you know, when it's, when it's relegated to people who have power and access and privilege, paternalism is off the chain and and they're right. disconnected. Right. But if it's just the people who are impacted, people who are impacted are spinning and are right. dealing with trauma and survival in a different way. And so it's, it's not, it's not any one person's responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities. I love the way Vivette also talks about this. And she talks about um, this work in terms of waves, and that everyone has a different role to play in waves. And she often uses um, indigenous frameworks to talk about this. They um, should use the references of like who's what people's roles are and were, and how they related to the collective health of the community Uh, that for us, you know, not everyone can be out in the streets protesting because who's going to get them out of jail? Right. (laughs) Who's going to, who's going to be the therapist that they go to when they need to work through the trauma of that work. Right. You know, not all of us can be, you know, behind the scenes because then who's, who's going to, be the face right so everyone has a role and you know folks with with a lot of institutional power folks with a lot of access um folks with a lot of resources they certainly do have a role to play and it's not just being dictated to Mm. and tease
0: that out a little bit
1: yeah i'm gonna tease that out because i don't want people to like take that and run (laughs) like when i say it's not just to be dictated to they have to they have to come to this space in terms of what itai said earlier about coming to the space with the goal of their own salvation too Mm -hmm. and if they're coming to Mm -hmm. this work with i need to save my own soul too right that Mm -hmm. stakes are different and so you're not like we often say this like you don't do equity work on behalf of people of color. Like that that's ridiculous because that's assuming that people of color are the only ones that are impacted. If we're all impacted right. and we're all implicated, then how are we all participating in the direction and the strategy and the ways to move right. forward? And so, you know, some of our best accomplices who are white they're, they're not people who come to us saying, tell me what to do. They're people who we process with, and they they put their their stuff out on the table. We put our stuff out on the table, and we figure out, okay, like, what is all of this? What mm-hmm. be- Where does things begin and end? You know, what overlaps? And how do we all want to move together? Right. And, and we collectively decide on how we're going to move together because – if I don't have access, I don't know what that side looks like. So how am I going to tell you what to do? I don't know what you're going to do because I don't know what you see on your side, nor do you see what's happening on my side when I'm working with my community and we're trying to do what we need to do. And so when the, that bridge that we try to facilitate and help build is a coming together of like, you know, I'm, I'm pulling the curtain back on what's happening on my side so that your outside perspective can help me understand what I'm dealing with better. And that, mm. and say like, okay, this is how I need to move yeah. versus, Oh, just tell me what to do. Like that's, that's not a conversation. Right.
2: So you right. t- and the way you frame that, Michael, it makes me think about the earlier question about how we define anti-racism. And I think I, I it made me remember one of my other resistances to that term is that we're not just dealing with race, you know, we are also understanding the ways that all of these systems interconnected are affecting us in a real way and organizations kind of being sort of the harbingers of that or what holds it in place in many ways. But, um, you know, attached to this colonialist impulse of race, we got to look at like Dr. Pat Hill Collins' Matrix of Domination and, and look at how um, patriarchy and hetero cis hetero patriarchy, right? We got to look at how all of these systems come into place to create this social order. And you know, it, when we think about just not the people who are are white or most privileged and wealthy and so on and so forth, I'm um, doing this work. I think about my story. You know, I'm I'm a, a mixed race transgender uh, indigenous person, right? But even in my own healing, right, part of humanizing myself over the last few years is I've been doing work around the way that I internalized uh, femophobia, how I'm afraid of my own mm. feminine attributes, much less other folks mm. who are are uh, side male at birth. Right. So like breaking that down is very similar in many ways to to breaking down the messages that I consume, that I ate and that ate me around whiteness. Right. right? And right. so all of it is so intertwined. And we often find when we're working in spaces that um, especially where uh, race and gender meet is that there's just layers of invisibilization. There's layers of power and privilege that move through those spaces. And when we look at um, some of the voices that really are uh, repressed the most within organizations, you're talking about um, women of color right? You're talking about right. genderqueer folks of color. And so th- I think that just that brought to mind that piece as well. But no, it's it's everybody's work. And um, I don't know if you've seen, of course you have, the movie Get Out, right? Yes. I articulated yes. something the other day that just really makes me think about your question, which is that white supremacy and all these other isms that are connected to this matrix of domination, um, not only does it cause people to slide down into the sunken place, right? Right. But to the extent that, like, white folks don't even have to stir the cup because we're trained to stir our own. That's how sick white supremacy is.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's a whole different conversation, too, uh, because the way in which we see... And this kind of goes back to some of the the tokenism that you talked about. You know, the where organizations, especially when they're instituting policies, oftentimes love to tokenize whoever the other is and elevate them to a place mm-hmm. where they are uh, becoming the you know the arbiter of of whatever the thing is, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and they're doing it, you know, with rugged individualism, oftentimes because of all the subsets of isms that live inside of them. That they're trying to, you know, you, this is part of the conversation and I'll, I'll have this out and in, in, have this out in the open in white space because I know we're going to have a lot of different listeners. This is where we end up with uh, color wars effectively, where black and brown people can't be seeing each other as doing the same work. It's, well, I can't you can't go ahead of me because I've been here doing this work longer. Or you have, uh, you know, different uh, different identity groups all kind of fighting for the same scraps. Rather than realizing that if we were working in tandem and in a relationship with one another we could we could imagine it's that conversation that you guys were talking about what's not here that should be here? What medicine exists in this room that we're suppressing because we feel like another medicine needs to be heard over another one like it it's so twisted in that way, and I feel like when you the sunken place is a perfect uh metaphor in and of itself because effectively we We do stir our own cups and we relegate each other to that space. And then whoever is assigned us the job of figuring this out kind of looks and goes, look, this is why X group of people can't be trusted to do X thing because you can't figure out how to get your way out of it.
2: Right. Right. And and some of the successes that people find, like you have to unpack the layers of like some of what has caused you to have success in your life is things that are maladaptive. Right. They're maladaptive. And so like and, and they they probably chances are they didn't feel good when you were doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. But they pay off. Like, I I don't know. I barely survived graduate school. And like, you know, having that gets you this 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 uh, title that you can use to get you these letters behind your name. But like unpacking what happened during that process. Right. It, in what ways was I separated from my humanity? And, you know,
0: and, yeah. and
2: that's just it's just real. And it all comes up when you start having these conversations and spaces it all comes up and it's hard work. Yeah.
1: yeah the other thing about what's so caustic about <laughs> the way white supremacy works in relationship what you're talking about, like the tokenism and the, the fighting for scraps. <laughs> we, we were actually a part of another conversation um, that was facilitated. People were asking us the question that we got was around um, gender and sexuality. And it was really beautiful the way I heard Itai describe this. And it also rang true for me, too, um, that because our, the way white supremacy works is so finite and definitive and angular, right? And, and siloed, that even our own identities have become that. That we, we cannot be expansive beings. And so if you show up in the system in one way, the other ways that you are get canceled out. So like, for example, I'm married to a cisgendered man. So the fact that I'm queer gets canceled out. Like mm. I can't be both in our society. Mm. And, and, it, and there's lots of like real implication reasons. And then there's also just like ridiculous reasons. Like the real implications of that is because I am married to a cisgendered man and white man at that, there are privileges off of that type of relationship, that type of relationship and I'm married, right? So that type of relationship is privileged in this Protestant-based, Christian-based white supremacy system, right? Mm. So I I don't ever get asked how I identify. It's just assumed. Mm -hmm. But if someone were to ask me and really wanted to know, I'd be like, actually, I'm queer. (laughs) This was just a choice that I made because I happened to fall in love with this person. Mm -hmm. They happened to be a man. But that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean I haven't been in love with women before. That doesn't mean I haven't been in love with other types of people before. Mm -hmm. But we we only get to show up in a certain way because the system only allows us to see things in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And Vivette often talks about, you know, I'm not going to allow this system to force me to shave the, the curves of my circle to fit in its square box.
0: Mm. Right? Mm.
1: Or when Itaï talks about, you know, queerness is is not um, you know, an othering or an alternative. It's an expansiveness and it's the full spectrum of way of being. Right? right it's the, right. the kind of retort that people make around feminism is like, oh, feminism, that's for women. When it's like, a true feminist knows that feminism is about equity for all, right? Right. Like it's those kinds of ways in which we we get into these traps because white supremacy has us, has us siloed in just our thinking about who we are, let alone how we operate as who we are. And that's a key element of this too. So when we're talking about relationship to self, like how, how deeply do you know yourself right. outside of this white supremacy lens? And can, right. you, can you take that risk to get to know yourself? And once you find out who you are, are you willing to take the risk to be that self in this white supremacy system that does not want you to be that self?
0: Hmm.
1: That's, that is huge. That is hmm. hard. And we're asking yeah. people to show up in that way every day when we show up to our clients in our meetings. Because our salvation is dependent upon that if we actually want to dismantle the system, because it is the key to what we're building on the other end of it.
2: Mm. That mm. that is the work. I you know, for me I had to recognize as well that um, you know, I'm I have a complicated ancestry since I come from both indigenous people and the settlers and the colonizers, right? And, you know, part of me at first was like this this self-hatred around that. But I came to understand that if any one of my ancestors made a different choice, I wouldn't be here today. So I kind of have to hold and acknowledge that regardless of all of what their intentions were, some of them probably good and some of them not, right? That I have to hold that space for myself. But the real recognition comes in is like balancing that with also recognizing what they left me with that I didn't ask for, that I have to be Mm -hmm. responsible for, that I have to reckon with. And again, like going back to the beginning, it's not that, it's not that scary once you just start to do it. You just have to have that conversation with yourself. Um, But I think the the longer, the harder people want to resist that conversation, the more it's going to hurt when you first get there. But once that Band-Aid is ripped, then you find people really starting to open up and express in a different way.
0: So when folks are in that place, okay, I'm in this I'm in this work thinking about my own salvation. I finally got to an understanding of it is it is about us, but it's also about me in us so that I can actually be my full self. And I bump up against something that I myself have not really reconciled with because I would imagine that happens often within these Mm -hmm. conversations. (laughs) How do you hold space for that person as they are figuring this thing out and sometimes probably rejecting the realization that they are coming to about themselves?
1: Oh my God. Yo, I, So uh, mm. Michael, like what you're describing, like, it feels like I literally just had this experience, um, because one, like you don't ever just come, it's not like you arrive at, oh, like, I understand what my salvation is. It's, it's an evolutionary process. Right, right. Ongoing. And, you know, I was saying like the B team is not exempt of it. and, and I'll, and I'll share this, but I, you know, am curious what Ita, you thinks. you know, I'm always sharing my stuff after I've like come to some realization. Cause it, it feels like, Oh, like if this is useful for someone else, but you know, in what you're just talking about for me, 2020, I had, I treated 2020 like all of my experiences around trauma and abuse in my life, mm. which like for me is like hunker down and take care of everything, you know? <laughs> very much doing the power hoarding, you know, I'm the only one, rugged individualism, totally playing up all of those things. And my team, like, watched me spin. <laughs> watched me spin mm. out and and held space for me to spin. And it took me maybe up until two weeks ago to realize that that's what I was doing.
0: Mm.
1: And, mm. you know, it came down to a conversation during a team meeting where I was asking permission to share what was on my heart. And Vivette's like, why are you asking for permission? Say what you have to say. And when I, earlier when I talked about that rugged honesty, you know, I'm a consultant doing this work and it's hard for me. Like, it's like, I know what I'm asking people to do right? because we, we try to practice what we preach and it doesn't make it any easier just because we've committed to that. And it took some coaxing. And it was really hard to say what I had to say. And it was, it was hurtful, painful experience. Um, But what it allowed us to do was to just get it out on the table so that we can figure out what's the way forward, you know? And so like, to answer your question, like, how do you hold space for people? Part of it is holding space for yourself, Mm. you know, like you, so like on the other end, what, You know, when Vivette and I talked a little bit about this experience, how she was holding space for herself watching me, but then also, you know, the thing that, the thing that we don't talk about and oftentimes our clients will say, oh, good God, this feels like therapy is that like we trigger each other, you know, Uh, social work, they call it transference and counter-transference. So you have this experience of, you know, what's going on with someone else, is starting to trigger your own coping mechanisms and memories. And so then you start doing those things and then, you know, you start responding to one another from these, um, these other places and what's actually in the room.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And part of our jobs, like we're not social workers, but we understand that from our cultural context. Um, and so part of how we hold space for that is Sometimes it's through our, our ceremonies from our traditions. Mm. And, we, and sometimes we've had to pull that out for clients because it's gotten that real. Sometimes oh. it's um, acknowledging where a person is at and, and making it clear that people get to choose every day if they want to continue to walk together. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't discount this person um, as not valuable or not worthy. It just means that wherever you are in your process, it is, it's not in a place that people can continue to walk with you. Doesn't mean you might not meet up later. So like sometimes we're coaching people out of organizations. (laughs) Sometimes we're coaching people into a different role within the organization. Sometimes we're providing coaching and sometimes we even recommend that they get therapy because of what the process is bringing up. So there are a lot of ways in which we hold this space um right. to do that because it's not it's not again because it's interdependent, you can't you can't save yourself. But right. you're right. responsible for allowing yourself to be a part of a process where there's collective salvation occurring, but you gotta show up fully to that. Um, that's where that vulnerability comes in. So I don't
2: know really you what you think. Yeah. And where that salvation work takes place really depends on who it is and what level of caretaking they require. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's somebody requires a lot of, you know, caretaking around that, just not intentionally, but unintentionally, then we might pull them aside for coaching. They might need to do some of that work in their caucus. But some folks are able to name it and it actually be the thing that is needed in that space to move the whole group forward. And so it shows up differently every time, and we have to be really adaptive. I think adaptive is one of our uh, mantras for our yep. work: is that we have to be adaptive to respond. To how is it showing up? Uh, how does it move through the group? Sometimes it is that really effective ripple that that allows that work to grow, and other times it's something that we got to pull folk aside because it's not. It's, especially if we think about women and queer folk of color. It's not a responsibility to have to hold that space for you. So. It depends, but it's always Great. powerful regardless of where it takes place.
0: Okay. So, and, and I'm going to be using some of the, the language that uh, that we've redefined here in this space right now in this next question. Um, what are some of the ways the language of fighting for anti-racism or as you all talk about it, uh, dismantling white supremacy or confronting white supremacy, liberation, equity, and freedom um, what are some of those ways that that language has become co-opted and now shows up as oppression? Um, what temperature checks should the Duke community be employing to hold fast to the accepted community definitions of these terms?
2: I don't know if you can see over here for the <laughs> listeners. We are laughing because we have confronted this and we just kept getting (laughs) run over by this one particular phenomenon to the extent that we decided to name and define it so the concept that we have defined for our firm is called white anti-racist counter-strategizing okay let me break it down for you so we find this very particular thing that happens in, in these spaces, these anti-racist or um, confront, confronting white supremacy spaces where white folks will learn some of the language. And I'm going to say white folks because we this is a very specific phenomenon that we're talking about. We'll learn the language around anti-racism. We'll learn the language of white supremacy, can name the values, and we'll then use it to publicly spank BIPOC folks. For not being on board, right? For not doing enough. And it becomes this really counterproductive thing. Uh, and so we have to, we have to then be like, wait a minute. What you're doing is actually using this language to reinforce the power structure that we're here to confront. And it happens a lot. So then there's a reset of like, okay, this is what has shown up in this space. And this is what we're not going to do, right? Um, but we do see it a lot. And so defining it has given us the ability to catch it in the moment, cut people off and to reorient, uh, because it can be really toxic when it does come up.
1: Yep. And and how that's impacted our approach that um, people will often, especially prospective clients, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, we have this book club and we're reading this book and that And the third. And, we're be- and, and our response to that is, well, cease and desist. Um, your book club is not where it's at um, because if you're coming to us and you have a book club, that they're, 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 it's counterproductive. And people are like, "What do you mean? What like what? What do we do?" Like, I I love the question of, "Oh, do so you have any resources?" And my my response to that, yeah, yourself. That's my resource for <laughs> <Where do> you. Yourself <laughs> so, and your colleague. And people are like, "What in the world?" But the reality is that we we get so another one of the white supremacy values, and you know we keep referring to this. But this is an article written by Kenneth Jones and Tama Okin, um, widely available. But one of them is worship of the written word. You know, if you work with us, uh, people who know us, you don't get agendas. You don't know what's happening in the meeting before the meeting is occurring. Now that doesn't mean we don't have a plan. But we don't need people hiding behind, you know, what's the next item we're going to get to. What we need people to do is show up and be really present to themselves and to their colleagues, be really paying attention to how they're feeling and how that's preventing them from participating in an authentic way. Right. That's, we don't practice that. And so, you know, we have um, a cohort of organizations we work with and we do learning labs for them. And one of the learning lab assignments was pick a meeting in the next month and make it agendaless. Go into the meeting, scrap your agenda and go in with just one or two questions instead. Wow. Hands down, every single organization that did it and all of them did said that not only were they able to achieve everything that they would have put on an agenda, but they were also able to have more generative conversations about the concepts and ideas surrounding the agenda items. Mm. They were able to hit it all. And that is because ideas connect in, in all of these really interesting ways that are not necessarily linear. Right. And so when you, when you free yourself of the time constraint of we're going to talk about this thing for this amount of time and this thing for that amount of time, you're able to see how the ideas are interconnected and how one thing is impacting another thing. And so you may toggle between two or three or four ideas even. And as you're moving through that, you're able to distill and land, okay, what are the action items? What are the conceptual pieces that we're still grappling with? You know, And how do we then move this forward? And what do we need to continue to reflect on? And, and, you know, Michael, you've experienced it in our sessions that y'all don't, you don't get agendas, but we, and we spend two hours plus in those conversations. And I think that's the other thing people are like, "What are we going to talk about for two hours. You're going to ask me one question and we're going to have a conversation about that. Yes, we are. And we're going to listen to each other intently and, and get into our, um, reactions and our feelings about what we're hearing and how that's preventing us from having the real conversations we need to be Mm -hmm. having.
2: Right. And when it comes to co-optation, you know, we see that a lot of folks and universities especially doing really what is quantitative based uh, equality work rather than equity work, have ham sandwiched equity into their divisions, diversity, equity, and inclusion and all of this, and are doing the same same old stuff, right? And in turn, just kind of replicating some of those systems. You think about like um, people saying, oh, well, well, we'll just openly share everybody's um, pay. And then we're going to do this this idea that everybody who is at the same level is just going to get the same um, type of pay. And they don't worry about how relationships might be affected by this, this big reveal. They're not in communication or conversation with people. They're releasing people's information without really doing the other work first. Right. And have it be a, a collective strategy, um but we see that kind of thing everywhere, and you know it's when it's not done from a place of relationship, it has the potential to just not only further replicate the types of power and control that we see but also just the the emotional harm the the harming of of relationship
0: so and because I live in this this space of uh kind of straddling um the fence myself in learning um, what it truly means to confront white supremacy, what it truly means to be in a space of equity, what it truly means to uh, confront my own internalized oppressions and things of that nature. Uh, There are certain features of professionalism that have been built into me at this point. They've been trained and conditioned into me. So the next question spurs from that. Because uh, the question I'm going to ask are what are resources and ways that people can further their knowledge regarding anti-racism and spatial justice? And you just spent the last hour and 15 minutes effectively saying none <laughs> of that. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you are saying like part of the, the problem here is the way in which we structured it. So maybe the better question is, is what are ways that, Departments can begin the work of relationship to better tease out this salvation that the collective group has from white supremacy.
2: Well, from my perspective, one of the biggest things that we see that is kind of a turning point from a group just talking about uh, white supremacy to actually move into that place that you're talking about is um Just naming the reasons why people in the space don't trust one another. Mm. Getting to that place, that is almost always the turning point. So whatever you got to do to deal with the shit that has gone down before you try to have this generative space. Right. And whatever else is in the room, you got to deal with that.
1: Mm. Hands down, 100 percent. That's exactly it. If you if you can't get to that point. Nothing. Everything else is just fluff. And how you get to that point, this is critical, how you get to that point is by being really, 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 really willing to put your stuff on the table as is. So Ooh. one of the ways that we do that um, and this happens and with all of our clients, this is just part of our approach. We use that white supremacy values article and then we we go over it. We ask people what they think about it, you know, how they feel about it, what resonates with them. But then everyone's responsible for giving specific examples of how they play them out in their daily life. And it's in those conversations where people start to name things for themselves which then gives people permission to talk about how they've been impacted by the things that people are naming for themselves. Right. Which then now that it's out on the table, now we've shifted it from this place of like being out in the ether, right? Conceptual policy procedures, ideation type thing to now we're talking about us and me and how I'm showing up in the system and in the organization specifically. And so because I've named it, no one can use it against me and no one can accuse me because I've already accused myself. Right. So that part that you tell you talked about earlier about getting the shame out of the space. That's one of the ways we do it. Mm. We help people facilitate out of their own shame by allowing them to own up to their own ways of their socialization and white supremacy with, without judgment. Right. And when I say without judgment, that people judge people all the time, but it's not our job to pass that judgment. You know, we'll often facilitate a conversation and, you know, Colleen, uh, one of our other consultants, will, will say, like, I'm actually not interested in whether you're a good person or not. Like, I'm not here for that. What I'm here for is to facilitate a dialogue about how white supremacy has got you doing whatever you're doing and what you're interested in doing differently about it. Right. Or in relationship to it, it's it's not for us to decide whether people are good or not, and and that sometimes mm-hmm. helps take the heat out of the space because people are showing up trying to look good, trying right. to save face, trying to like you know make sure that people understand that they're a good person and really focus on intent and not impact. And we're like you know intentions are important, impact is more important, and really like it has nothing to do with whether you're good or not. It right. has everything to do with do you want to stay in this system or not? Right. And if you don't, then yeah, there are choices available to you if you allow yourself the opportunity to avail yourselves of them. And so allowing people to name things for themselves and then have discussions about how everyone has been impacted by the choices we've made to survive this system gives us the opportunity to talk about, okay, how does that impact how we trust each other? Right. And we yeah. how we don't trust each other. And then right. there's something else on the other side of that. Because right. the practice of it, we've been building vulnerability and trust. So even when we're upset with each other, we have never had a meeting where someone has left the room. Mm. And mm. we've been doing this work. So Vivette and I specifically have been doing this work for going on four years now. Mm-hmm. With the team, it's been about a year and a half. We facilitate two to three meetings almost every day with Mm. across maybe 27 organizations, not a single person from a single organization has ever clicked off or left the room out of anger in these conversations. And they have been Mm. hard. People have cried. People have been upset. People have been frustrated, but they stayed in the room and that, that, You can't do equity if people aren't willing to stay in the room.
2: Right, right, right. But if folks do want to buy a book, Michael, buy a journal. Buy a journal. That's your book. Because guess what? We are Mm. all experts in white supremacy. That's right. There is not a person among us who is not because it is everything we've ever learned since we took our first breath, probably before. So we're all experts. Buy a journal. That's right. Mm.
1: Okay.
0: I like that. That's that's a very functionally formative and then we can get into the details of which journal is better. Like, Ooh, I like this one cuz so it's got a letter binding.
2: <laughs> no lines, <laughs> no, no lines.
0: <laughs> no lines. No, you need freedom on the page. No. Uh, so no, I I definitely get a defined sense and I'm realizing our time is what it is now, but I I definitely am getting a, a defined sense when you all are talking about uh uh the, uh, that so many people love to show up and love to uh, express their intent of things rather than see the impact of something. I definitely get a defined sense that that is, that is the station, that's the position that we all want to be in. We want to be seen as have, having made the effort, even if the effort doesn't necessarily transmute in the way that we meant it to. But I I have known zero prisoners who the intent of freedom was good enough.
2: Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: There it is.
0: All right. Is there anything you two would like to add
2: to this discussion? I would just say, regardless of who you are, you, your family, your chosen family, your ancestors, those who will come after you, all your kin, are worth the investment Encourage mm.
0: mm. <laughs> I like that,
1: and I will add that our collective salvation is dependent upon it.
0: Dina, mm. <laughs> you tell you, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank, thank you, you, Michael. Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Space of Justice. If you like what you heard today, be sure to register for Just Space Week, Duke University's conference centered entirely on the conversation of spatial justice. This year, as you may have gathered from our first episode with the B Team, is focused on anti-racism, equity, and connecting Duke to Durham in meaningful and just collaborations head over to sites.duke.edu backslash just space backslash conference to sign up today. A special thanks to Tina Vasquez and Itai Jeffries of Biwa Emergent Equity for making time to get us ready to embark on a journey through confronting white supremacy and understanding how to implement equity in all spaces this season. If you'd like to connect with them or find out more about what they do and what they can do for your campus department, Head on over to www.biwa-emergentequity.com to fill out the form under the contact tab to get your first conversation with the B-team started. Again, that's www.biwa-emergentequity.com. Today's episode was logistically possible because of the brilliance of Elmer Oriana, Paige Vinson, and Lindsay Miller-Furness. Our web presence is possible only because Tara Carty makes it so. Francesco Santos and Matt Sarkey are the genius minds behind our assessments and analytics. To the Fearless podcast team of editors and collaborators that consist of Samea Faison, Ling Jin, Ezra Uza Mason, Brian Lackman, as well as the Just Based Conference Chair who's pulling double duty, Kevin Erickson. Thanks to Marcy Enfield's crew for making sure our equipment specs are just right. Just Space Conference Marketing is handled by the Illuminous Sarah Neff. Sam Babs' keen eye keeps us all looking perfect and synchronized. And Catherine Lester Bacon and Victoria Krebs ensure our online learning design is tight. Jeff Nelson and Gina McCullers are the tireless captain and first mate of the Just space Committee. Tasha Curry-Corcoran is kind enough to ensure that the Office of Student Affairs at Duke University keeps us going one more turn around the sun. Our theme song, Yoriba, is by Lasana Diabete. Engineering and mix of today's episode is by yours truly. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for the next episode. A special non-sponsored shout out to Zencaster for making it possible for our team to do remote recording sessions safely while in an international health crisis. Please remember to continue to wear a mask and wash your hands. And although the vaccines are here, we're not quite at the finish line. Also, be sure to get all your questions answered, so when it's your time to get the shot, you can. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you today, and I can't wait to see you next week. As always, I'm Michael Betts Second, and this has been Space of Justice.